Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to Think Humanities. Today, we'll talk about a new Museum on Main Street exhibit coming to Kentucky, COVID or not, here it comes. I'll introduce uh, a guest from Murray in just a moment, but you may be asking or hearing for the first time the term Museum on Main Street. What is it and where can I see a Museum on Main Street? We call it in our Kentucky Humanities office, MOMS, Museum on Main Street. MOMS is part of the Smithsonian Institution Traveling Exhibition Service from Washington, D.C. And yes, we're talking about that Smithsonian. Museum on Main Street is uh, a way to give access to the Smithsonian, the Smithsonian in Washington, to small town America through museum exhibits, research, educational resources, and programming. Moms, uh, believe it or not, has visited 1,600 communities across America since 1994. And at Kentucky Humanities and in Kentucky, we've had a Moms exhibit just about every year of that time period. In Murray, Kentucky, from March 27th to May 1st, the exhibit is titled Voices and Votes, and that's the new exhibition, which will be in Kentucky. The exhibit uh, will then travel to five other locations in Kentucky, for example, to the Portland Museum in Louisville. And its last stop uh, in November uh, is at Wilmore. And the full schedule for Voices and Votes is on our website, kyhumanities.org. And believe it or not, at the same time, there is a second museum on Main Street, It's uh, titled Crossroads Change in Rural America. Currently, uh, as we speak, it's in Pikeville at the Appalachian Center for the Arts, and we'll travel then to Glasgow, Paris, and Loretto before it finishes up in uh, 2021. But let's go back to Murray and Voices and Votes. Jeff McLaughlin is the Murray State University Special Collections and Exhibit Director. And he is uh, the coordinator for Voices and Votes uh, at um, Murray uh, and knows a little bit about museum and exhibits and things uh, um, that we will talk to him about today. And uh, we happen to be taping this podcast at the very uh, time that uh, Jeff and and others, including our associate director, uh, Kathleen Poole, who uh, traveled to Murray uh, and who does all of our exhibit um masterpieces, uh, putting those up in places all over Kentucky. So Jeff worked with uh, Kathleen uh, today, and uh, I'm sure there were some other volunteers. Jeff can tell us about that. But uh, welcome back, uh, Jeff. Uh, You are also a member uh, of our Kentucky Humanities uh, Speakers Bureau. You've got some, uh, we had you on the podcast not too long ago, and you've got uh, some interesting talks. We want people to look up your name and information and you're willing and able and ready to uh, to represent Kentucky Humanities and the work that you're doing. Um, so you have a, uh, a first-hand uh, sort of touchy-feely uh, look at uh, Voices and Votes. And first of all, Jeff, I just would have to say uh, or ask you uh, uh, not particularly about the exhibit itself. We'll get to that. But uh, the what you thought would be a good idea for the Murray uh, community, the university community, for uh, people who will see it from all walks of life. What is the um, what is the theme that uh, has meaning uh, for you uh, as you uh, begin to bring people to the museum for voices and votes? Oh, I, I guess first up, I'm just so glad that we have this now because. Um, it, I don't want to minimize any suffering that, uh, you know, we, we've all experienced suffering of one form or another over the last year. And those of us who have had the least rough time have still been cooped up and have not been feeding our brains by going to museums and doing 
things like this. And, uh, you know, I have a little 10 year old daughter and normally we go down to the Tennessee state and pardon me, we're closer to Nashville than, than Lexington Louisville. Of course. And, and, you know, Tennessee state museum. And we go to discovery park and, you know, we look at stuff and we learn, you know, we haven't been able to do that for a year. So now at this moment, when the flowers are starting to bloom and where, uh, you know, many of us have got our vaccinations and we're feeling good about re-engaging with the community. We just so happen to have, this terrific uh, mom's exhibit right right here in town. It's um, it's so fortuitous the the the, the timing, and I, I just I really I think the people who are going to get the most out of this it will be enjoyed by all. I guarantee it. But I think the people who will get the most out of this are people who have you know 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 year old kids at home who have missed out on all sorts of field trips, and educational opportunities, and stuff like that. So. What um, impressed you about, and I don't think I've ever done a podcast with anyone who opened the crate. Um, I've been to uh, many of the mom's exhibits uh, across Kentucky over the the last uh, four or five years, and I know what it looks like uh, when it's uh, out of the crate and set up and ready for the public, but it must have been pretty exciting to start uh, opening up uh, and uh, putting this uh, this exhibit together. Is it typical of, um, uh, as a museum uh, expert yourself, is it typical of the way a, an exhibit would come in and, and begin to be set up? Oh, this, this it's like um, the NASCAR pit crew version of a permanent Smithsonian exhibit. Like, it's designed that a strike force of four people could put this thing together in, in three, four hours. It's brilliant. And frankly, if there's a way for me to ask Kathleen to ask one of her people in DC, if I can get a tour of the workshop, that is like near the top of my list of the next thing that I want to do when I'm in, I'm in DC. Cause it's just so brilliant. Like all the foam is laser cut. It's like these wheelie bins are packed up like Dutch container ships. There's no waste space. And uh, again, so I, it was like a, my crew, there was me, there's one staff member who actually had worked in a museum, and then it was all student workers who had never seen or done anything like this, and they all got it done. It was fine. Were they, uh, were the students impressed with the exhibit once it uh, was put together? Yes, and uh, like I have one student here from Louisville, and she is um, looking to get into a museum studies grad program at UofL, and she's done here at Murray State, and said, look, in your application letters, you talk about how you, with your own two hands, you put together a, a mom's exhibit. Put it in your job letters, too. I mean, it's a thing. It was a good experience. That's good. Well, let me tell people uh, what they can expect, and then I'll ask you to describe um, some of what uh, I'm going to read about. Um, it, it is based, Voices and Votes is based on a major uh, exhibition uh, at the Smithsonian's Natural uh, National Museum of American History, called American Democracy, A Giant Leap of Faith. Um, it has uh, a number of features, historical and contemporary photos, educational and archival video, engaging multimedia interactives with short games and additional footage, photos and information, and historical objects like campaign souvenirs, voter memorabilia, and project or, or protest material. So, in the in the history of it, uh, can you tell me, Jeff, uh, the period of time that it spans uh, from start and and where does it end up? And tell us about some of this uh, the interesting uh, uh, footage that uh, can be seen, uh, campaign souvenirs, um, protest material. I'd like to to know about some of that too. Yeah, well, it begins with the the, the revolutionary era and the decision to. Uh, you know, break up the band and go your separate way. Sorry, I'm Canadian. I have to say that I kind of regret that decision. <laughs> I mean, if we had if we had Brexited at the same time, we would have had this wonderful super country from the Arctic Ocean all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. But I have mixed feelings about that. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's you know, and it's very much in 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 touch with um, uh, the women's suffrage movement. Uh, the civil rights movement, the video that you'll see, it's protest march, marches, um, it's uh, political campaigns. It's, it's all really great stuff. It's all designed to be multi-sensory and, and super engaging. 
And the, so the one thing that I knew was coming, but I, w- I wasn't like on paper reading about it. I wasn't kind of clear that it was going to be as fun as it is. Uh, but they sent us three tabletop games. And they're like March Madness brackets of uh, one of them. Can I give this away or should I just wait? Sure, go, go right ahead. I'm telling people how the sausage is made. Anyway, so the one game is like, it's a March Madness bracket. And it's like, which food is the most American? And you sit down to that game with three other people and you're going to get in like the most heated debate you've ever had in your entire life in a very fun way. Uh, and then there's another bracket. It's, uh, you know, who has contributed the most to uh, American life. And it's kind of similarly bracketed, but um, it's, you know, it's, it's just a whole lot of fun start to finish. And that was a, that was a neat new element um, that I, I really appreciate. And I hope to do for the next one. You had seen one other uh, mom's exhibit, did, did you? Or yeah. are you uh, you knew about Crossroads? Is that correct? Yeah, um, I knew about Crossroads. We had hometown teams here back in 2018. Um, Crossroads, I think, came kind of like right on the heels of hometown teams. And uh, uh-huh. I, I mean, um, anybody who's at a small museum anywhere in Kentucky, if you have not had one of these, you need to get one of these because they're the best thing that you can do for your visitors ever. They're 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 absolutely terrific. They're so easy to put together with a small team, and it's um, if it's a treat for us every time we get to host one of these. Well, the uh, exhibit also contains uh, what they call American experiments. Um, that's the traveling trunk, I guess, with a collection of activities. Uh, uh, that that the visitors that you were describing um, can uh, well, this might be different. This is uh, uh, visitors looking at the exhibition um, from the standpoint of maybe uh, bringing students from a classroom. Uh, mm-hmm. I think this is the uh, the the head to head challenge. Yes, is that is that yeah. the, the that's what you were describing to us? But I believe there's also a, a place where you can leave your opinion. Uh, I believe good citizens should, and you, I guess you finished the, the sentence there. Is that recorded or, or written down? Um, we got a whole bunch of whiteboard markers, and um, one of my final to-do tasks is to find a spot. I, I'm terrified about the, the end result of handing a whiteboard and a marker <laughs> over to like a 13-year-old boy. Uh, you know what? Whatever. We'll, we'll you know, let it ride. See what happens. Yeah. And uh, there's also a... Uh, um, a photo opportunity, uh, uh, where you stand in comparison to others. Oh, no, this is a, a photo opportunity, but there's also a, a game, a voting game, posing thought-provoking questions about our democracy, citizenship, and voting. Um, that would be like um, taking the SAT or something if you were uh, uh, an older adult and, and wanted to. It, 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 have you taken the test yet? Uh, I, I'm so confident that I would get perfect. I don't even need to take it. <laughs> but I think, like, uh, you know, um, we're we're happy to lead off against Garrett Cole. Okay, I know we're doing, like, the first one of these during the town under the pandemic. Um, we're going to make the absolute best of this, and it's going to be good. But I think um, the host sites that are going to get this in the summer and the fall and when you can have multiple events and people together and, you know, just experiences where you really throw yourselves into these conversations and these games, it's going to be, for those of you who are coming down the pike, you're, you're going to love this even more than we do. And we're all so happy to have it. All right, Jeff, there are some, um, I mentioned a minute ago and you commented on uh, some, uh, what uh, the Smithsonian calls thought provoking questions uh, that need to be asked and need to be, Voiced, yeah. uh, voice and votes, voiced um, as uh, this exhibit uh, really creates an atmosphere of um, of questioning where we've been, uh, where we're going, uh, what uh, current state we're in. What what do you want the public? What do you want students who are fortunate enough to come to the rather and, and see the exhibit? What do you want them to walk away with? Well, I, I think. Um what I would want them to come away with is is a sense of of how American democracy has been an aspirational project. It's democracy, a better democracy is something that we've you know been striving for since seventeen seventy six and uh, we're, we're working towards per- perfection we we haven't we haven't reached it and um, 
there have been waves of people who have fought to expand the franchise and you know without them we wouldn't have the rights we 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 have today um i uh, this you know i i'm a non-citizen immigrant and uh this is the most fascinating country on earth i i hope people are flattered to hear that but um you know it's a it's a country that does have some troubling aspects to it and uh you know Democracy has been America's brand, but you've always had like a substantial minority or even a majority of people who were in the circle of power, who didn't want to share power and who have blocked other people who tried to exercise their their rights. And so, you know, it's been a 250 year process of just kind of chipping away and, and making the country better for everyone. I can't imagine that uh, the Smithsonian would not go overboard, work hard uh, to be fair, um, to be nonpartisan, uh, to uh, present uh, each view, each side. Uh, tell me how they pull that off. And, um, and did you feel like that uh, no matter what ideology or political party, um, you get a good grasp of uh, of American history from um, early uh, times all the way up to present times. Oh yeah, they're they're meticulous on this. They they would not let this thing out the door with any hint of uh, partisan favor in one direction or the other. And um, you know, when all all of the companions uh, or all of the host sites along the tour are going to have their companion exhibits, and um, you know, uh, we there are interesting, fascinating Democrats and interesting, fascinating Republicans who have fought to uh, improve the franchise, like here in our part of Western Kentucky. So we got a section on uh, uh, Governor Ned Breathitt. We have his papers here in the archives. And, you know, he was instrumental in getting the Civil Rights Act passed. And then we also had a couple of uh, really cool Republicans. Uh, there was Dr. Ora Mason back in the, the 20s, and she... Uh, she was she like ran the West Kentucky Republican Party back in the Coolidge era, ran for Congress, got completely trounced, uh, had to run under her husband's name. She was a medical doctor in her own right, and she had to run as Mrs. William Mason, wasn't even acknowledged as a doctor, much less wrong. But anyway, uh, so her story is cool. We got her worked into our exhibit and uh, um, TRM Howard, uh, just a just a fierce civil rights activist and uh, doctor. Um, just a, a brave, brave guy who, frankly, it's almost shocking that he made it out of Mississippi in the 50s without getting assassinated. Uh, but he was just a tremendous advocate for justice for uh, for Emmett Till. He was a Murray guy. He was a Republican through and through. So uh, we want everybody to feel, um, feel good about what we're doing. And uh, we, there are good people on, on, uh, on, in both parties or uh, hopefully maybe something we have more than two parties in this country, but that's again another <laughs> another conversation. Well, I'm sure that might, uh, yeah. Well, it might be another conversation uh, there at the museum uh, while people are uh, going through voices and votes. Uh, uh, will there be other? Um, um, will there be other public view, uh, public events uh, at the at the museum uh, while the uh, voices and votes is at the rather? So we are um, live streaming our keynote event, which is going to be Monday the 29th uh, at 7 p.m. CST. So if you just Google Murray State Streaming, the link will be on there and you don't have to catch it. I will leave it up for weeks afterwards. Hmm. You can just you can you can watch that at your leisure. But um, we got Sherman Neal um, as our speaker. Um, he is um, someone who is new to Murray. Um, He's a he's a fascinating individual. I like him very much. Uh, he's he wears many different hats. He's a, a volunteer football coach. He's a lawyer. He's a former Marine. Um, I just I don't know if if there's one person I want to hear from, it, it's him. And frankly, I, I think the end of the pandemic is going to be rougher on him than anyone else because he's going to find about a thousand people who want to take him up for coffee. Like <laughs> So, uh, but uh, yeah, Sherman's our guy. Um, we still can't like have a wine and cheese or, um, you know, it's just, it's fine. We'll, we'll make do. So the, the live stream is, is uh, 
basically the big keynote event. Well, I'm sure you'll do a, a, a grand job. Uh, you you sound so interested and uh, fascinated uh, by the exhibit, and uh, honestly, uh, that's the way most people come away with uh, being so impressed with what the Smithsonian has done and what this program is has been doing um, since 1994. And and uh, proudly, I say uh, Kentucky Humanities and the way we've brought uh, those and not just parked it. Uh, in Louisville or Lexington, but taking it uh, on the road uh, each and every year or every other year to to small rural towns. Um, I remember the first one I saw was hometown teams down in Wayland, Kentucky. And if you've never been to Wayland, uh, it's one of those that uh, the expression about uh, blinking when you drive through uh, no stoplights. Uh, but they had a, a, a terrific outpouring of citizens from all uh, different counties from around uh, that Appalachian area and uh, a very enthusiastic uh, mayor and uh, and booster of uh, of all things uh, eastern Kentucky. And it was a it was a, a great opportunity and a great example, I think, of the American spirit and uh, people wanting to learn and and know more and 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 then discuss and uh, have programs that uh, center around the theme that the Smithsonian has put together. So we uh, we really appreciate uh, your um, participation. Uh, uh, y- do you have a blister or anything that you can prove that you uh, put together the exhibit today uh, that you can show? Um, okay, this is what I'll say to the other assembly crews. The, the wheelie bins, some of them are up to 300 pounds. They don't corner, you know, like a Corvette, okay. Uh, move slowly with them, and that's all I got to say. I'm, I'm not going to hold these up. You just took my word for it, but I didn't pinch my my hand. <laughs> well, I hope it's hope it's all right. Um, uh, Jeff, thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate it very much. Uh, good luck with the exhibit. We hope that uh, everyone uh, from uh, the area, from Western Kentucky, uh, make a trip. It's it's about time to get out on the road again and. Roll down the windows and uh, and uh, breathe some fresh air and uh, come to the museum. Uh, stay a while, look at it. Um, I'm sure you're practicing there too, social distancing and yes. allowing just a certain number of people in and uh, being sure that everything is wiped down. So it's it's going to be safe and secure. And uh, we just wish you the best of luck on it. Yeah, it'll be everybody in the building is messed up at all times, and uh, you know. Um, we're on campus, so we follow all the university guidelines, and they're designed to keep everybody as safe as humanly possible. We'll be back right after this word from our friends at Spalding University. Spalding University is affordable, nationally distinguished, low-residency MFA in writing. Offers excellent instruction in a compassionate, supportive community. Focus on your own area of concentration. Explore across genres and examine the interrelatedness of the arts. During one-on-one independent study, you'll write prolifically and receive expert feedback from your faculty mentor, developing the discipline to keep writing for life. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, and writing for TV, screen, and stage. Learn more at spalding.edu slash school of writing or email school of writing at spalding.edu. Sherman Neal joins me on the podcast now. Mr. Neal is a resident of Murray, Kentucky, a Marine Corps veteran, lawyer, assistant football coach at Murray State University and community activist. He was the keynote speaker at the opening of the Kentucky Humanities Museum on Main Street exhibit, Voices and Votes at the Rather West Kentucky Museum at Murray State University. Voices and Votes, Democracy in America is an interactive exhibition from the Smithsonian Institution in Washington. When American revolutionaries waged a war for independence, they took a leap of faith that sent ripple effects across generations. They embraced the radical idea of establishing a government that entrusted the power of the nation not in a monarchy, but in the hands of its citizens. That great leap sparked questions that continue to impact Americans today. Who has the right to vote? What are the freedoms and responsibilities of citizens? Whose voices will be heard? Sherman Neal, uh, you were quoted as saying not too long ago, 
nothing changes in the country or in this community, and you were speaking of Murray, without the will of the people behind it. So welcome to our podcast, and uh, tell me what you meant by that statement and what you said in your keynote address uh, when the Museum on Main Street exhibit opened. I appreciate you having me on, and i um, certainly uh, happy to talk about this and highlight the work that of many others, um, in addition to my little part here. So what I meant with the will of the people was, um, you know, that uh, the tangible expression of, of, of wanting and seeking change um, in any type of medium, whether that's through, you know, writing, whether that's through protesting, um, whether that's through, you know, creating artistic works, um, which then represent what the will of the people is. And uh, which is why I chose this monument as a as a um, as a as a figure to to indicate or at least find out what our will is. And the specific language of the will of the people actually came from the um, Callaway County Fiscal Court itself. Um, one of the two criteria that uh, the county attorney Ryan Ernstberger uh, put in the resolution where the county determined to keep the monument was a the UDC um, chooses to remove the monument or B, you know, the will of the people um, indicates that, you know, the county should take action for this piece of property that is on county property and, and move it. And so rather than combat um, the county on, you know, what the will is and whose responsibility it is as, as elected officials to determine that will, um, we determined to, you know, make the will of the people known to our elected officials and kind of a reversal of the process there. Sherman, um, for those in the listening audience uh, outside of uh, Callaway County, for example, in the rest of the state of Kentucky, uh, as you know, uh, a podcast like uh, we're uh, recording today might even be listened to by anyone uh, who has uh, an iTunes account or SoundCloud or happens to find our podcast on our uh, website, kyhumanities.org. So go back and tell me a little bit about what you know, uh, the history and when you said the monument, what monument we're talking about and what the uh, the movement of, um, of the people. Uh, you were just one of the activists who, who worked uh, uh, to remove uh, the monument. Tell us a little bit of, of background uh, as much as you know. No problem. So one of the sayings that um, I picked up um, from historians in, in Kentucky after getting engaged with this was that uh, Kentucky didn't join the Confederacy until after the Civil War. And that kind of explains the whole situation that we're going through here right now. So from the outset in Callaway County is located in far west Kentucky. Um, the, the county's population is about 40,000. Um, the city of Murray is about 20,000 or, or 30,000 of that. The, the city of Murray and the county uh, did have soldiers that chose to fight uh, in the Confederacy. Now, if you look at Kentucky overall, um, the, the ratio of soldiers that fought in the Union for the state as opposed to the Confederacy is about three to one. In fact, there's 24,000 um, Black soldiers who, who enlisted to fight for the Union from Kentucky. And in, in this pocket of the state where we're at, it's, it's interesting because we're on the forefront of two different things. Um, Fort Donaldson, um, which is the site of you know, a major Civil War battle, one of the uh, pivotal battles for the Union to open up the South, is about uh, 20 miles south of, of where we're at. Um, upon the Union victory there, where General Grant first gave his you know, unconditional surrender edict, kind of showing where the United States is gonna move uh, from there. Um, upon that victory, it actually served as a refuge site for, for uh, newly freed people. Um, formerly enslaved people, many in Western Kentucky and many in Western Tennessee. Those people um, upon freedom did one of two things, either headed north to, to escape or enlisted in the army and turned right back around. Um, 
and, and fought for what's now you know their country um, as, as as citizens. Um, and in, in 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 contrast to that, you have Western Kentucky, which is um, really sponsoring a lot of the uh, guerrilla, you know, Confederate um, uh, movements that you you see prevalent in Missouri and Arkansas uh, and et cetera. And um, and although there were people here who fought for the Union, the majority did in fact fight the for the Confederacy. Now. To me, you know, when we talk about will of the people, um, those fighters who did that were doing so on their own volition. And, and what matters is what happened in Mayfield, Kentucky, which is roughly 20 miles up the road from Murray. In Mayfield, Kentucky, the, the counties, I believe it's around 18 that constitute the, the Jackson Purchase area of Kentucky, Western Kentucky, held a convention to secede from the United States and join the Confederacy. At the courthouse in Mayfield, Kentucky, um, the, the, they decided to stay with Kentucky and therefore stay with the Union, which, which firmly makes Kentucky, including this area, regardless of sympathies, you know, a Union state. And, you know, I, and people say, well, influence or political things played into it. That surely wasn't the case in Virginia and West Virginia, where this happened at the same time as well. And so people were using their voice and their vote to decide what side they wanted to be on. And Kentucky chose uh, to be on the side of the United States. So, so that, that takes you about to the Civil War and, and mm-hmm. what happened there. So afterwards, um, you know, with, with Reconstruction, Kentucky really benefited uh, from that decision because the military occupations and, and various um, rules uh, that came with reconstruction um, weren't implemented in the state um, as opposed to Tennessee. This area really began to thrive um, in, in that environment and, um, and, but did so while still, you know, keeping a close cultural alliance with, you know, the, the what happened in Tennessee. Um, in particular, um, the negatives of those things. So where, where people including myself, you know, focus on groups like the Ku Klux Klan, which was started by Nathan Bedford Forrest, who in fact was in this area and still a prevalent figure here. Um, you had the, the Knight Riders who, um, you know, were really the precursor and then acted throughout doing the same type of terrorist acts. Um, you have black coverage, you have um, segregation, you have, um, you know, the same patterns, the migration of, you know, black people leaving. Um, Again, if you look at the population of, of Callaway County and, and, and the surrounding counties now, you'll find margins of, you know, 90 percent uh, white to 10 percent minority and uh, even above that. And it's not because black people weren't here. It's because they either chose to leave or um, as these towns became sundown towns, another uh, growth from from, you know, um, white supremacist um, governing leaders. Uh, they were forced to leave and, and could not, you know, uh, exercise their constitutional rights. So that happened through the 1900s. Um, and then early 1900s, you see, you know, the, the Klan, as I alluded to before, being the manifestation of, you know, all of these outgrowths to suppress voices and votes. Uh, in fact, you know, the Klan's primary purpose is to ensure that what happened in states like Mississippi and South Carolina and having black representatives did not happen. Um, and the, the Klan, you know, because of even, even in the context of, you know, the lynchings was seen as a bad actor. So they needed an organization to, to put into effect a lot of their policies um, that still had some type of ability to negotiate with your general public face. And that's, that organization um, became the UDC, the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Um, and this is where you see the, 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 the monuments starting to be erected throughout the country, um, including the one that was erected here in, in Callaway County, Kentucky. Um, and um, all the things that you would assume would be associated with the monument and the construction of those happened. Uh, you have monument goes up, black family in the town gets their house burned down. Monument goes up, 
the UDC uses it as a rally point from that point to, you know, talk about uh, keeping seg segregation generally. And then you can go back and pull papers from the 50s. It's the rally point to talk about desegregating schools, such as this is one of the areas uh, of the state where we were last to do so and, and on to today, um, where you see in, in this re most recent House session, um, you know, efforts to curtail people's First Amendment rights to exercise their voice. And, and, and really that's been, um, you know, the, the, the fight that's been continuous uh, out here. The that was a, an, an excellent summation and um, a, a history of uh, the entire region. When was the um, when was the, the Lee Monument uh, constructed? Do you know the date? It was nineteen seventeen. I believe they started nineteen seventeen or ordered it. Okay, it was completed nineteen nineteen. And uh, I knew this number at one time not too long ago, but uh, have forgotten. There are a uh, it would surprise people uh, an enormous number of of monuments, plaques, uh, representations of the Confederacy um, still in Kentucky, um, even though some have been removed, some have been moved, uh, some have been destroyed. There are still um, and, and I would imagine uh, you can probably name the locations of, of others, but let, let's don't go there. What was your effort in? Murray, and uh, what has been the outcome? So my effort um, began on May 31st of 2020. I, I wrote a one-page letter addressed to um, the mayor of Murray, um, uh, councilmen, uh, councilwomen, and um, our senators and congressmen, you know, demanding that we remove this monument. Uh, that letter was published on June 1st. And um, frankly, I, I thought that I'd be engaging in talks like this, more academic debates, um, local government, you know, nuances. And uh, all that went out the window the next day when um, there's a protest down the main road, main highway down here, a car um, drove through protesters, um, used mace on them. There's guns pulled out, uh, multiple assaults. Uh, that are pending a criminal trial right now and immediately recognize that this is this is different this this is uh, the the ironically i uh i use the words of thomas Paine in common sense um to to find some inspiration on you know determining whether people have hit the point where they're ready for action which is what happened when thomas Paine wrote that and it served as a catalyst. And that's what I wanted to do um, here. And it's grown from there. As far as, you know, the, what's happened, it's, it's, it's unveiled all of the issues that are ancillary to preserving a relationship with the Confederacy or any enemy of the United States and what we believe in. Um, what do I mean by that? One, the first thing that you see is the implementation of administrative burdens to try to curtail people from speaking. What does that mean at the, you know, the local level? It's you change you know, how many minutes you're able to speak, when are you able to speak, how are you able to speak to your locally elected officials, all of which would happened immediately um, in, in terms of closing the forum and um, limiting, you know, what that voice is so you can't figure out what the will is. The second thing is using the power of the state to uh, intimidate or to retaliate against uh, protesters. Um, we saw that here where we had an incident where um, the president or a member of the Sons of Confederate Veterans uh, actually took a hose, affixed it to the courthouse, um, took that hose to the monument, which is located roughly 20 meters away, and uh, turned it on three women uh, protesting. And um, you would think like, well, you know, obviously this, this may be a good thing. What does this have to do with um, retaliation? The women that were standing there exercising their rights were in fact the ones charged with violating a crime. One of the women was charged with filing a false police report for reporting you know, an, a, an, an assault or a touching um, by that man through extension of the hose. Uh, the county attorney, who actually authored the um, resolution to keep the monument here, 
is also serves as the prosecutor who, who based on the facts and, and video available, seems to be serving the interests of the Sons of Confederate Veterans um, at this time. So again, that's the second thing that you'll see is the you know retaliation and intimidation by the state. And then um, the third is, you know, just an outright endorsement of these Confederate groups or neo-Confederate groups um, based on you know, the lost cause narrative in and of itself. So by including the language um, of, of the United Dodgers of the Confederacy and, and other groups that you know have a certain belief of why um, the South fought the Civil War that we, that is generally accepted as false at this point in time, you, you endorse that as the state. And when you endorse that as the state, you endorse the actions of those people. And um, so by, by choosing to do that um, in July and in September, we now live in a county where, you know, the, the will of the people or the will of this, uh, this city is, is merged with that of the Confederacy. And so that's why it's important to continue um, fighting here. One of the interesting things about, you know, the evidence cited to, to, to decide to leave the monument was that the county attorney looked at the minutes from the fiscal court in 1919. And, you know, I, I just spoke about how in 2021, we're suppressing voices right now. I, I would bet, be willing to imagine that in 1919, we didn't have a, a representative of opposition at that point in time. So it just perpetuates the same cycle of, 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 um, silencing people. Um, we're talking with Sherman Neal, who uh, is uh, speaking to us from uh, Murray, um, where he has been working on removing uh, uh, the monument, uh, the Robert E. Lee monument uh, in Murray uh, for a number of uh, months now. Um, and it sounds like even though he continues the fight, the uh, his voice is somewhat silenced by uh, government officials. Uh, he is a Marine Corps veteran. He uh, works at Murray uh, as an assistant to football coach. Uh, he's a, uh, a lawyer. And um, you went to law school in West Virginia, but your undergrad is from where, Sherman? Middle Tennessee. State. Middle Tennessee. Um And we're speaking to him about uh, the Kentucky Humanities uh, uh Museum on Main Street exhibit, uh, which we call Voices and Votes. And it's really all about um, some of the things that Sherman's been speaking of. It's about protest. It's about uh, legal representation. Uh, it's about voting. Um, there's a full exhibit at the Rather West Kentucky Museum. Uh, I have not seen it yet, but I want to. I understand it's just uh, uh, phenomenal in in what the representation of a actual exhibit from Smithsonian Institute in, uh, in Washington is. So I hope people that listen to us in West Kentucky, and I will uh, give you a, an idea of where else it's going to be in the state of Kentucky uh, as we wrap up here in just a few minutes. Sherman, you're also, I understand, uh, a, uh, a, a devoted to uh, some of the uh, words and the biography of Thurgood Marshall, um, Supreme Court Justice, and and the work that he did. Uh, what what other uh, tell us what Thurgood Marshall says to you? What what other mentors? Uh, what other uh, progressive leaders, activists that that you look up to, and who you've tried to model your your life after? Uh, th thanks for. Highline that. So certainly um, the words that you hear me say and my ability to say them come from people who've been trailblazers. Um, very little original thought um, here. To, to, to talk about Thurgood, I think it's good to look at again what this exhibit's about with voices and, vo and votes. And when, when I sat down and I thought about what that means, uh, voices equaled vulnerability and, and votes equal faith. And for people here that, you know, ask for a timeline on when this is going to get done, how difficult it is. Um, immediately, you know, I, I think of Thurgood Marshall and what it must have been like for nearly 10 years with Brown versus Board of Education to fight to get that passed in Kansas. And then like, when, he, when he passed it, 
to have to go back again to address the same issue and again and again, and then being on the court itself, trying to get the same thing that he had passed, you know, put into effect as, as far as desegregation. And so from a perseverance standpoint, that's where I draw uh, a lot of strength from, from a, you know, standpoint of difficulty and in, in, in how you craft your message. Uh, I, I looked to Frederick Douglass um, initially and Frederick Douglass, you know, said, there's no change without a demand, essentially. And one of the biggest critiques that I've received, and maybe it's because I'm from Chicago and now I'm in small town Kentucky, is, you know, I use the word demand very for a very specific reason. Uh, I didn't want any ambiguity in what we wanted to have happen, uh, where we wanted to happen at, um, or willingness to negotiate. Um, that's why I also looked at, thought it's ironic that General Grant, you know, gave his unconditional surrender edict just right down the road from here. And so what that meant immediately was, well, you know, if you just say, please, thank you, um, you know, have a old glass of iced tea with the old nice men and nice ladies, you know, you, it, it'd be more likely that it gets done, work through the back channels. And, um, you know, for me to, to do that um, would be to have read a lot of books about a lot of change makers and change agents, but to employ nothing of what they did and take no risk. So without taking any risk, nothing would change. And, and, and so I started with those national figures, and that's what this exhibit's been um, great for me. This whole experience has been great for me from a learning experience standpoint. So I knew about the March on Washington, and I, and I knew about um, John Lewis. I knew about Martin Luther King uh, Jr., but I didn't know about the March on Frankfurt. I didn't know about the movement in Kentucky. I didn't know about previous movements here. I didn't even know that in 2017, we had this debate in Murray. And, and so every every time that, you know, we, we make a demand, it validates, you know, the next person. And, um, and, and that's all just, again, when I say that's why with votes and, and continuing to vote by, by writing, by doing something, uh, it just, it just, it's an expression of faith. And that's what people like Thurgood Marshall had to have had I know that uh, Frederick Douglass had to have had it, having come from slavery, lived through it, and then seen Reconstruction and, and, and being one of the main people to enlist Black soldiers in the Army right here down the road. Um, again, just, and then from a, you know, resiliency and, and long-term planning standpoint, uh, I would say John Lewis. Now, admittedly, I needed to read a lot more about him, and it sucks because, you know, often we don't until someone passes. and so. Not so much the work that he did in, in his, well, one, working with a lot of students, he was 25 when he was on the steps of Washington. That, that to me is amazing. And, 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 and for them, that lets them know that that can be you. Um, I've met many that that can be, and I hope, it, hope that it will be. But today, as in March 20, 27th, um, you know, we're talking about the passage of the John Wright's voting bill. That's insane. So the man, just like Thurgood and Marshall, had to work, get beaten into an inch of his life to get the right to have a voice and a vote. Mm -hmm. See it come, through, uh, come to fruition. See the Supreme Court take it away from him or, or the country, really. And then to the day that he died, you know, advocating and fighting. So for me, that's what it helps me now to as I chart a path to, 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 to make sure I understand that this is a lifelong commitment and that, you know, don't engage in any actions that, you know, are going to hurt the lifelong, you know, goals of, of what we want to see for our country and then future generations. Well, let me share with you uh, a couple of other uh, points. Uh, you were mentioning uh, what has happened and what you've learned uh, since just becoming a Kentuckian for uh, a couple of years. The shame of it is that uh, a majority, I'm going to say, of Kentuckians don't know the history of our state and of, uh, of much of what you spoke of. And uh, because at one point it was not taught and still uh, we struggle to get uh, uh, the humanities to get uh, history. Uh, into uh, schools in Kentucky so they can uh, give the 
kids an opportunity to learn a lot of what uh, you spoke of. Uh, and number two, uh, again, the shame of it is that just uh, as we tape this today, yesterday, the president of the United States had to call uh, the voting bills that are circulating around the country uh, in our own Kentucky legislature. He was speaking of Georgia, calling it un-American, what those legislators have done to voting rights in this country in 2021. Uh, it's, uh, we should all be ashamed. Definitely. And the, I think, I'm, Ironically, this time last year, um, Admiral, Admiral McRaven was a keynote speaker at Murray State. And um, one of the things that he had said at that time, which rings true with me and why I chose the monument again, was that K-12 education is the gravest threat to American national security interests right now. Because once you lose an idea of who you are or why you're doing something, you'll do anything. And... The, the UDC, the Daughters of Confederacy, you know, recognized that early on and were extremely effective, as you said, in, in eliminating, you know, any narrative that wasn't conducive to upholding, you know, white supremacy and then, you know, retaining political power. Um, and the first step is to recognize, like you said, how effective that they were and, and how many narratives haven't been captured. Get those narratives reconcile and then chart a new path. So no one's erasing anything here. We're acknowledging, you know, what was done and, and we're, we're going to reconcile that um, civilly. And then we're going to we're gonna write a, a, a narrative that's, that reflects who we are, that will make us more strong and, and more be, better position to move forward. Sherman, uh, we want to thank you for uh, joining us today on the podcast. Uh, we've been talking uh, for the entire podcast with Sherman and Jeff McLaughlin, who is the uh, curator and uh, the coordinator of the uh, exhibit at the rather West Kentucky Museum Voice and Votes, uh, which is a program of uh, Kentucky Humanities Museum on Main Street. Um, and Voices and Votes will be in Murray until May 1st, so you've got plenty of time to uh, to get to the museum, they're they're doing their best to uh, keep it safe and clean, and uh, and uh, they they would like a lot of people. Hopefully, uh, as we get into the month of April, uh, we're going to see a lot to more activity uh, with people being vaccinated and and still wearing the masks, but uh, being as safe as possible. Uh, after that, uh, voices and votes uh, in Murray will will go to five locations in Kentucky. Um, the next one is is going to be in Louisville at the Portland uh, Museum, uh, that area. The last stop will be in November in Wilmore. Uh, there's a full schedule on our website at kyhumanities.org. Uh, so we hope that everybody will will take part in Voices and Votes. It's a terrific learning opportunity. And it, if you um, haven't been fortunate enough to go to Washington, D.C., to uh, the Smithsonian uh, Institute with all of their activities and buildings and and block long uh, displays of, uh, of many artifacts. Uh, this is when the Smithsonian comes to your community or somewhere near you and you have an opportunity to see it. So once again, uh, thanks Sherman. Uh, thanks for all that you do uh, uh, down in Murray and uh, to all of our listeners. Uh, thank you for listening to Think Humanities. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.